The Funambulist, Design and Racism. Hadil Khalil Asali. Uh, our second uh, guest for this round table is uh, Hadil Khalil Asali, uh, who is a PhD student at Columbia University in Anthropology. And um, we met in London, actually, for a symposium about Gaza. But uh, in, uh, as you can see, tonight she will be closer from us here and talk about uh, South Texas. So, Thank you. Um, I was going to apologize to Leopold because I think he imagined that I would present something on Gaza, which is the topic of my research. Um, but no, <laughs> thankfully, it was, he, was, it was all free. <laughs> he was very open, and um, I chose to present something actually that um, I became very intimately familiar with from a previous life. Um, before I decided to embark on a PhD in anthropology, I was a chemical engineer and worked for an oil company, a major oil company in Texas. Um, and at the same time, I'm, I am a daughter of uh, Palestinian refugees from Gaza, so imagine putting those two perspectives together, which is what I'm trying to do in my PhD now. Um, so, South Texas. Um, this is sort of, let me see, how do I operate this thing? Yeah, okay. Um, there's a picture here now. Oh, no. Okay, that's fine. So just to kind of orient you guys, I was first, before I moved to Texas, I was working in Illinois as a process design engineer and what process design for, for a refinery. And what that kind of design is basically a black box. You're, you're designing inside the refinery, not so much interacting with outside of the boundaries. Then I moved into environmental remediation, which is what I thought was environmental cleanup. Um, what it actually was, and I was working for ExxonMobil, what ExxonMobil's terminology is, is bounding liability, right? Um, <laughs> and also, I kind of came in there very enthusiastically. I had a multi-million dollar budget. I thought I would really be able to make a difference. And um, at one point, my boss sat me down and said to me, well, listen, I just need to tell you that these projects, because I was a project manager, he said, these projects are like soap operas. You walk away for several years, you come back, and nothing's changed. So I did this for about two, three years, and then I, I left it, and, and here I am. Anyway, so as a, pro as a project manager for environmental remediation in South Texas, I was working on projects on oil fields, and oil fields not on rigs in the ocean as we imagine, but on land-based um, oil fields. <clears throat> and basically in this area between Corpus Christi and mostly between Harland and there's another town here called McAllen. So usually when we talk about the border, we're thinking about this area here. Um, and so this, this is all oil, well, all of Texas is oil country, but just to give you some, some sort of um, uh, geographical orientation, that was the area that I was working. And the landscape is basically, almost all of the land is very large uh, ranches that are privately owned by very well-to-do families, mostly Anglo families. The most famous ranch down there is the King Ranch, which Kingsville, Kingsville is named after. I don't know what happened, but I had a logo here of the King Ranch um, that has been taken up, I think, by Chevrolet or Ford. I don't know, there's a King Ranch truck. Um, but basically, this is the, the landscape. is very large um, uh, ranches. And the way that they make their money is usually from, of course, oil royalties, where companies like ExxonMobil and other companies will come in and produce, and the families get a certain percentage. 
They also make money from uh, cattle ranching and from hunting, right? Some of them also from agriculture. Now we're in a phase where oil has pretty much dried up in this region, except for the Eagleford Shale. Maybe you guys have heard of, well, you've heard of fracking, but that's one of the areas. But that's not quite the area I was in. So the area I was in, oil production has significantly declined. And so the new kind of um, revenue stream for the landowners became environmental damages. And the way environmental damages worked was, and, and this is an example of me speaking with one of the landowners, was, okay, you guys produced here, there's environmental damage here. Let's just make a deal that basically I won't sue you for the contaminated groundwater here because they don't care because they don't live there. Um, and you're going to give me a certain amount of damages and we'll just make a record on the title of the land that the regulatory agencies approve that says no one can, no one can put groundwater wells in this area. So it's recorded in the deed now. And I came to see this as another layer of dispossession. Like first, and I'm going to go through the history of this area, which I think we know, but I'm going to go through that, that this was already a dispossessed area. And then the landowners, as another revenue stream, said, okay, let's just restrict groundwater use in this area. And money exchanges hands, the contamination stays where it is, and everybody's happy. And by the way, the regulatory agency that governs um, oil facilities and this uh, oil production is called the Texas Railroad Commission, right? So it's not under the Texas um, Commission for Environmental Quality, I think, TCEQ. So that, for me, it was like another layer of obscurity on where do you even go to, to um, seek support. So just a brief history of South Texas. I don't mean to insult anyone's intelligence, but I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, basically, as we know, of course, there was Cortez, and then there was um, this, this area became Mexico. It was Mexico, in Mexican independence in 1821. Um, Battle of the Alamo became the Lone Star Republic, very short-lived until it was absorbed by the United States, which sparked the Mexican-American War. And then this, the Treaty of uh, Guadalupe was signed, in which the border was drawn, and 100,000 Mexicans were left on this side of the border, coining the phrase that I'm sure we've all heard, that the we didn't cross the border, but the border crossed us. Um, and so I was thinking about sort of the, the theme of this issue, and, um, and, and there's a historian named David Montejano who, who sort of puts this, in, puts this history in kind of a racial logic scheme. And he asks about um, the conditions now, and particularly the policies dealing with South Texas, and what is it about the history that led to such racialized logic in the policies that we have now? Um, so I'm going to talk about this thing called colonias. That's what, that's what I'm leading up to. But ju just, just kind of keep this sort of um, framework in mind where, you know, we ended up with, of course, segregation. And then technically there was integration, right? But then there's this other sort of outlier that I'm going to point to now. And my argument kind of in, in this, in this uh, research that I did was that actually there's a significant portion of the population that never experienced integration. Um, so what I'm talking about today is the te South Texas colonias, is what they're called. And they're basically, they're, they're also in Arizona and Mexico, but the vast majority of them are in Texas. And what they are are basically, mm, a lot of them are basically like shanty towns. Um, they're basically like for the landowners, these large landowners, if they have a piece of property that they're no longer, 
is no longer productive to them, nobody needs, they don't need it anymore for whatever reason, either environmental damage or the soil is no longer productive, then they will hand it over to developers and uh, create these developments that are called colonias. Um, and there's a quote on the bottom here, and, and, and well, let me, let me come back to this map because I think it's important to, um, so as of the past few years, there have been counted about 2,294 uh, colonias in Texas. There's also Arizona and uh, New Mexico. And this accounts for nearly half a million people. And most of these people are US citizens. Um, and the major infrastructure issues include flooding, access to water and sewer, mail services, and of course, major health risks that come along with these things. Um, so let me just go back to this map to give you the quote on the bottom here that says, how sad, and this is from a film that was actually made about the colonias. How sad to be born here, live here all your life, die here, and not know what it's like to be an American. Um, so I was working on a site, well, I was working in this area, and, there, and, and I just want to tell kind of a specific site story, this, uh, this location called Driscoll. So Driscoll is a large ranch that was partly agricultural, and of course, oil production is everywhere. Um, and this is a map from nearby. So you can see kind of in the landscape that like oil is just kind of part and parcel of the landscape there. Um, so Driscoll was named after Clara Driscoll, who was a very um, wealthy woman, I don't know, back in the 1800s. And the, 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 the family has essentially turned the, the um, the money, the wealth, into a, a Driscoll Foundation that funds hospitals and, and whatnot, which is nice, right? It's a nice humanitarian gesture. But all around this area are colonias. And what they are are basically, like I said, shanty towns where they're, 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 um, they're dependent on the local groundwater, they're dependent on the soil, they're dependent on the actual environment that they live in. Um, but when you look at, for example, this, this particular project, if you look at like the regulatory agencies and the oil companies' regulatory reports, the, when they do, what they do is called phase one, phase two assessments, environmental assessments. These shanty towns or these colonias, they don't show up, right? Because what they have to do is risk analysis to see who's going to be drinking the water here, who's going to be at risk here. But because these are not quite incorporated, not quite official developments, they don't show up, like the, the water wells don't show up in, in like state water well searches. So whatever contamination is in the groundwater is not, they're not considered, basically. Right? Um, so I just wanted to kind of give you another sense of the landscape. I mean, th this one is obviously a cleared area. Um, most of South Texas is covered in mesquite trees like this. Um, this is basically looking north, and this is Driscoll up here, the, the oil field slash agricultural field. And behind us is the colonia that I'm going to uh, point to now. So this is the entrance to um, the place that I visited. Just like just all kinds of oil infrastructure nearby, all I mean through and through. This is inside the colonia. And I don't want to give the impression that these are like completely destitute people, right? I mean, they're like, like we all know people are creative. Some of these are more built up. Um, but this is just sort of an exemplary one that's very close to a, a heavily uh, contaminated site. Um, 
this is uh, these are the, the two women here are um, owners of the house that will I'll, I'll explain the ownership of the house that we looked at that's me looking very confused at their oil uh, their water well um, and if, so if you notice here that there's no grass growing nearby and so one of the biggest indicators of oil field contamination is a lack of grass and the reason for that is not because of the oil itself but when you produce oil, what comes out with it is called produced water. Do you guys know this or am I, yeah? So, okay, so oil, natural gas comes up out of the ground and with it comes what's called produced water, which is actually salt water that's heavy with heavy metals, radioactive materials, etc. But even just by virtue of the salt, if there's any leakage, nothing grows, right? So this is their water well. It's meant to be their drinking water. As you see, nothing's growing around it. And this is a close look at their um, their water filter. So they don't drink the water, thankfully, they bring water in. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of the end of my talk here, but basically I wanted to kind of give you guys the process of how a colonia comes to be. And like I said before, that there's a, um, a landowner who's no longer interested in this particular piece of land that they have, and so they'll hand it over to a developer and this is actually, it's, it's kind of satirical, but it's also very true that this is how it operates. Um, and I'll leave it up here. Well, I guess you guys can't read this, can you? But let me just point to number four, where it says sell lots on a contract for deed basis. And so what that means is if somebody wants to buy a property or buy, or buy in to live, what they get is called a contract for deed. So they don't actually get the deed for their house. They get basically, they, they, it's very low cost, they can start making payments and move in right away, but they can't, they can't miss a payment because they don't have the deed. And therefore, anytime someone misses a payment, then they're, already, they're shipped out and someone else is brought in. Um, but this kind of gives you sort of the, the design, if you will, of a colonia. Um, basically, step one is prepare mar market research, find a poor community with conservative banks that will not provide mortgage, so I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously preying on vulnerable populations. Um, find a willing attorney. So I mean, so, you know, <laughs> crooked attorneys abound in South Texas. Um, septic tank water supply, that, that are willing to supply uh, research land development, septic tank water supply regulations. In the absence of those regulations, you have a good potential for developing a colonia. And I, and I want to talk again just a little bit about the regulation scheme there. Um, I mean, you know, I worked with the I worked with the railroad commission, and I think some of those, I mean, you know, it's, as an anthropologist, you know, you're you're careful to just kind of structurally define things without the people. And yes, there are people that have good intentions, but what you actually find is that most of the people that work in regulatory agencies there are usually cycled between the industry, the consultants, and the regulatory scheme. Right? I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bruno Latour's. Uh, work on the, the French legal system and the, you know, and the same thing, right? Like you found that the people that were working in the different elements always kind of circulated around and that was kind of the, the world that you get into when you, when you get into South Texas. Um, so, right, so that the landowners, the regulatory agencies, um, the attorneys are all usually very intimately connected. Select an area close enough to, but at the same time, away from the city where building and development activities are not really noticeable. Um, 
negotiate with the landowner, offer to pay double the asking price as long as the sale is owner financed, offer to pay 10% down, and the rest is a very short term at a very negotiable interest rate. The owner has already made money doubling the price of the land. Do not get any banks involved. The transactions are to be kept secret. You don't want to lose the element of surprise. Fiercely protect the anonymity of the landowner. Sell lots on the contract for deed basis. Number five, get a surveyor or engineer to develop the subdivision on paper. Number six, advertise, but not in a nearby city. Ask for a very low down payment, even as low as $25, or as little money as a potential purchaser has in his pocket. Starting next month, he will have to produce 125 or 150 until he pays off his debt. Number seven, by the time the local officials realize a colonia is developing, hundreds of lots may be sold and many families may already be living on the site. Number eight, by the time there is an official local action or state legislation enacted, the colonia will likely be completely sold. Number nine, if, pr if pressured by the state or county to produce improve improvements such as water, sewers, or state streets, argue lack of funds but continue selling lots in order to finance the improvements. Meanwhile, keep on making money. It may take a year to be subjected to enforcement action, at which time you declare bankruptcy because of the high cost of improvements. Number 10, relocate to another city. Communicate with, the, with attorneys by mail. The most important ingredient in this recipe is time, distance, and surprise. So, um, yeah, those are South Texas colonials. Thank you. Thank you.